Hey folks, this is Anatoly from Solana, and you're listening to the No Sharding Podcast. And today we have Evan with me, uh, co-founder of Coda. Hey folks. We'll be talking about a really cool, amazing blockchain that uses zero-knowledge computation to uh, create a, a blockchain that never grows in memory. If, is that correct? Is that a that's correct? correct. Yeah, that's, that's the idea. <laughs> <laughs> that's my understanding of it. So kind of like to give you some idea of what his building is me as like an operating systems engineer looking at what they're working i feel like i'm a dinosaur like a really fast dinosaur but like i think the the idea of encrypted computation that you can verify is just kind of mind-boggling science fiction to me it, it is yeah i remember when i found out about it the first time like my uh co-founder from uh was studying some snark things some zk snark things and uh it just kind of blew my mind that it was possible to create this tiny little proof of like humongous computation that anyone could verify. Like it, uh, it almost seems like it should be impossible, but it's not, and it, we can do it today. Yeah, that, that's really cool. Like, I, like, so what does that mean to be able to create a proof of a computation? Like, well, let's see. So, uh, like, let me give like the high level, like the generic thing, then I'll give the cryptocurrency specific answer to that for Coda. So we have like some big computation we want to do and we have like, you know, us with like our little mobile phones and like, you know, we can't run that huge computation. It's just not going to happen in any reasonable time frame. But someone out there can go make this proof of the computation. And then we know that if we look at the proof that if we had run the computation, we would get the result the proof is telling us. Um, so this is really awesome because it means that we can safely delegate computation to third parties that we otherwise cannot trust. It, you know, if uh, you went to AWS and you asked, like, you know, what's the result of this computation? You're trusting Amazon, you're trusting AWS to do that. And not everyone even can run their own server. They can't get access to that. So if you can produce these proofs, everyone can now trust the output of any program you want. And if you think about blockchain, this is really key for how we're thinking about it is that you have this state of the blockchain, you have the state of the world that you want to trust for like real life serious things, but, but you as like your individual user don't have the time and the resources to verify the whole chain. But with a zero knowledge proof, you can look at the tiny little zero knowledge proof and instantly know that everything is as it should be, that you can trust the data on the chain. Um, and so especially in like a world that's very mobile, very like web browser heavy, it's like we think like a, a key technology um, for so, building. So how big is a zero-knowledge zero proof? It's like um, about, depends on the kind, but about a kilobyte. So about the same size as like a couple of tweets. It's and, small. And it's the same size no matter how much computation you're verifying. That's right? right. It could be like a millisecond of computation. It could be an hour. It could be 100 years. It's, it's always the same to check right. the output. Yeah, so like kind of in more traditional blockchains, like what I would consider Solana is... What you're solving is uh, the light client problem, right? Like we have light clients that simply can't handle verifying our high performance chain. Right? Yeah. And but we still want those light clients to have some assurances that the state is correct. And the way that's done right now is they simply look at validator signatures and decide that okay, if these guys are lying, it means that they're all going to get slashed, and therefore I can trust their what they're signing. Right? Yeah. So so there's some economic based trust there. But what you're telling me is that if we could take the whole chain 
and create a zero-knowledge proof, then the light client would only look at this one tiny kilobyte and, and know for certain that the result is correct. That, that's right. It's like an element of like, not just kind of like, did I work out the economic incentives right? Or is there some weird actor who's going to come in and mess it all up? Or like, is it actually, you know, a thousand percent certain? And you get that with snarks. Yeah, that, that's really, really cool. Um, the fact that they're constant space and constant time to verify for clients is like, and just kind of like seems too good to be true, right? So yeah, <laughs> why isn't everything running on snarks? I mean, I think it will one day. I think everything's <laughs> going to run on snarks. I think that like if people aren't already integrating them into protocols, they're going to be there. Um, I think that like the future of cryptocurrency and the future of like kind of people in like a digital world is depends on snarks to be uh, fair and reasonable for everyone. So what what are, I guess, the engineering challenges remaining? Let's see. So um, <laughs> so we've been running testnet now for the last like six months. So there's been like a, a lot of progress there. And we actually are at a point now where I feel like it's actually starting to get stable. We've had a network now that's been running for six weeks. Um, and we're running it over the holidays also. So, you know, fingers crossed it'll be 10 weeks total. That, we consider that to be you know, a huge success. Uh, what's left at this point is we need to make it have the features that we want it to have to not just be usable from like a low level technical like oh validate the zk snark perspective which all works we need it to be also usable uh, to complete our goals of just like anyone can just easily get started with it anyone can easily use it um, it works on like you know a plethora of devices um, and over the next few months that's what we're going to kind of be rolling out like this like uh, wider usability uh, features so, so what are what are the features in the snark-based system? Like, mm. can I do spans? Can I do arbitrary computation? Yeah. So today, is the testnet as it stands right now, you can do regular transactions, and we're thinking through how much we're going to get into the network for uh, you know things besides that. Um, so, with, so regular transactions is just a transfer yeah. from one one person to another, right? From one account to another. Payments. That's right. One payment. Yeah. And is it account based or UXDO? It's account based. Okay. Um, we're working now on uh, feasibility for adding in more than this, though. Um, we at least want to add in like tokens, conditionals on accounts, so you can like you know time lock in accounts. You can do multi sig on an account, so you can like make conditions and transactions only go through if certain conditions apply, so you could do things like a DEX. Um, but we have an idea now for adding in general purpose computation as well, which we're really excited about, um, sort of in the same vein as uh, ZEXE, if you've seen that from Zcash. So uh, we're looking forward to hopefully having a very general purpose compute at some point in the future. That sounds awesome. but. Um... <laughs> yes. Like, like my understanding is that like the for general purpose computation, the difficulty is is in the in how you actually generate the not the proof, but the the circuit that can create the proof, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, so maybe like six months ago, um, general compute was definitely possible, but it would have been extremely slow. So you would be limited to like a very small set of features, but. What's been happening is there's been this um, breakthrough in, in SNARK research where you can now, so I guess stepping back one sec for this, just to give a little more context is, if you want to create a new SNARK circuit, you have to run a ceremony. What a ceremony is, is a process where a bunch of people get together, they run some code, as long as one of them runs the software unmodified, you're good, 
But if they were all to collude, you're, you're kind of in trouble. So you need to make sure there's enough people. If you had to do a new ceremony for every single snark construction or every single snark circuit, that, that would be pretty bad. What's happened recently is you can do a snark ceremony once, and then you can make as many circuits as you want into the same family without having to run a new ceremony. So which, what is the family? like? So, so um, basically, you have um, these uh, different snark constructions that have slightly different properties, and they all use different elliptic curves and whatnot, okay, and they have different okay. features, like some have recursion and some don't. Okay. Um, you can run universal setup, and within that family, you can make as many programs as you want now, oh, which okay. means you can have fairly efficient general uh, computation. Cool. Okay. But um, we're still constrained by the making of the program itself, right? Because, like, at least last time I checked, if I have, like, a you know, recursive SHA-256, SHA-256 itself has, like, 20 million, right, constra yes. constraints? And if it's recursive, those uh, add, those add right. So every call to SHA-256 adds another twenty million constraints. Yes. So if we like get into kind of like the minds of like you know uh, us as snark programmers today and the snark programmers of the future, um, if you add um, complicated code to your snark circuit, that's going to blow up in size, be really inefficient. If you do like regular kind of logic, like if statements and stuff, very efficient, like you know no problem at all. But crypto can get really expensive. So it depends on the kind of crypto you're using. Um, SHA in particular is extremely inefficient inside of a SNARK. It's like almost like the worst case scenario for what we want a SNARK program to look like. But there are other hash functions and other like public key cryptography schemes that give you the same results, but very efficiently. Is there pre-image resistant friendly SNARK? Yes, or friendly hash function. Yeah, yeah, pre-image resistant hash function that's friendly to SNARKs. Yes, there's um, one called Peterson, which has been out for a while um, in the Zcash. Um, Sapling update switched over to this, but now there's even newer ones that we're like using and excited about called Poseidon that uh, is is like super super efficient. Oh, cool! Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, like, I mean, it's it's not and, yeah. it's, and it's still pre-image resistant. Yeah, awesome. So what are what are the trade-offs between Poseidon and, and SHA? There is a trade-off. So uh, with SHA, you um, have this property that when you hash something, you have you know some uniform randomness you can assume over the output of the bits. You don't get that in um, uh, with with Poseidon. You get pre-image resistance, but you do not get like uh, it's not a random oracle. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Cool. It depends. So you got to think about it a little bit, but for most use cases, like a Merkle tree, you're you're good, which is the main one yeah. you see in Snarks. Um, I wonder if it's sufficient then to construct a VDF using Poseidon with a Snark verifier. I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe. Yeah. Be really cool. Yeah. Um, so arbitrary computation, it's still, you can do it, but it's going to be hard, right? Like the, like whether, whether I take like, cause arbitrary computation to me is like, okay, fine. Let's just take all the Solana, our entire runtime, which uses a register based VM and stuff it into a snark. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we're, yeah, I think it's, we're not, we're not there yet. It's true. Uh, um, but I think it's moved from like a research problem to like an engineering problem. Um, and we're, we'd still, you know, you wouldn't be able to just take arbitrary code that exists today. You'd probably have to write new programs um, that would, you know, be in some language that compiles into snarks in a friendly way. So there is some challenge there to overcome. But I think like it's, uh, it's not like it shouldn't be a question anymore whether this is going to happen. Oh, it's totally going to happen. Um, it's just a question of when at this point.
Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for almost like an LLVM for Snarks, where we have some intermediate bytecode that is Snark friendly, and then we can start writing like these high-level description languages to solve these problems, right? Like, what are the kinds of computations that I can achieve today, right? Yeah, totally. Um, we've have this library Snarky we've been working on that uh, is maybe like, you know, a proto approach at this, um, where you can write what would look like regular code and it compiles down to something that Snarks can understand. Um, so yeah, I think it's happening and it's uh, gonna be very cool when that like is fully fleshed out and exists. Um, so like, I've, what's to me like the, the critical piece in this thing, in my understanding of this is that this compilation of taking an arbitrary computation and compiling it to a snark is almost like I have a software that I want to create a FPGA representation of, right? I'm taking the software, which is arbitrary math, and creating a, a physical representation of it, of gates on a, on a device and, and hardware. And, you know, usually it's called a netlist, right? So there's a huge, enormous, like, list of gates that are very simple gates and and ors, right? Mostly NANDs, right? Yeah. Depending on the, on the kind of that list you're using. Um, and the bigger the software is, the more branches you take or the more co complicated loops or jumps, the bigger the netlist becomes. And at some point, if you have recursion, you have to build in these hardware pieces called signals, which can basically netlist runs, it stores some of the computation in the state, and then reruns it again with that start, right? So is that a similar thing? Like, is, is that like basically what we need to do, but in this cryptographic domain? Yeah, I think it's kind of a fair analogy. Like, <laughs> kind of funnily enough, like uh, anytime you have a branch, you have to lay out both tracks in the snark circuit. Um, so branches kind of add up if you can't share logic between the branches, which you often can, it turns out. Um, but yeah, in fact, a lot of the early versions of uh, like libsnark and the early versions of snark programming, this was kind of like the direct metaphor was you are laying out a circuit. Um, it's moving more towards programming now with stuff we're doing, is what other people are doing, but um, oh no, it's totally there, yeah. Cool, and uh, how does the, like, how does recursion work? Is there like an effectively like a signal, uh, like kind of piece that you can use? I don't know the, the the signal component world well enough. Okay. This is like for like a kind of like uh, like the hardware world of like making clocks and stuff. I guess. Yeah. Well, like or yeah, a clock in your. I mean, you effectively yeah. have a net list. It gets to some state, and then you're like, okay, I need to restart, restart. Maybe take portion of the state and run in a different circuit. But I effectively need to recurse, right? I'm I'm taking a, a snapshot of the state and then running it again. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can't tell whether it's exactly fair or not. The way I usually think about it is uh, you just have like a function and the output of that function is fed back into the function if you want to run it again with like a base case. Um, I think it's probably very similar though. And is the is this recursive part that is something that has a circuit for snark verification, correct? Yes, yeah, so when you feed the input back in, you have to um, you know, the snark itself has to like ver verify itself. So it has logic inside of itself for verifying itself. Right. So this yes. is where my mind is like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, this is where my mind gets blown. It's like you have, you have something that, the, the netless part I understand, right? You kind of like think of, you think of our software, some, some form of math, you can take any, any mathematical function and express it algebraically, right? Yeah. But if it's recursive, you're like kind of then 
do what do you do differential calculus right at that point right or like <laughs> like to, to, to express recursive operations you're actually talking at a different complexity layer right like you're going from simple algebra algebraic expressions to like recursively enumerable languages which is right like the turing complete land right like what you're telling me is that there's a way to take arbitrary turing complete programs and encode them in such a way that they can be the result can be verified, right? That like that's right, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yes, there is like some kind of like self-referential kind of strange loop thing going on with this like self-referential recursive checking. Um, so yeah. if, if somebody <laughs> were to tell me that like five years ago when I really heard nothing about this, and all I had was the base knowledge that I had from my courses in complexity com complexity theory and like you know i would have said it's impossible there's no way you can do this yeah i mean <laughs> I, I think it's probably similar to how like when hash functions are first coming out people are probably like yeah there's like no way that you can like you know make this irreversible function or when public key cryptography came out there's like oh there's no way you can like sign something that i believe you but i don't even know the secret i think a lot of cryptography is just kind of magic like that and uh when it happens it happens and it's amazing to see and yeah so yeah, the way I've been able to kind of wrap my head around it is similar to like hash functions that when, because you're dealing with such a large domain, 256 bits, that you can kind of see that, okay, if you do enough of these operations that the, the number of branches that you have to deal with, right, like blows up to such enormous amount that you can see that it's impossible to reverse. Yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, <laughs> it's just not going to happen. <laughs> and, and the similar, but like, my intuition for snarks is that if I have a computation that has this circuit, I'm almost creating a hash function to represent this computation. Yeah, I, I, maybe the way I think about it sometimes is like, you can make a really large proof that you could be convinced of, but it's like proportional to the size of like the runtime of the program. But it turns out there exists some fancy math that you can start taking that big proof and making it smaller and smaller and smaller. In fact, it's just constant size. And that constant size proof is uh, probabilistically the, the, the same security as the, uh, as, as the big proof would have been. So the attacks are somewhere like, because it's still effectively, that, that proof is based on similar kind of security constraints that we, that we understand with uh, like one-way functions like a SHA-256, right? Yep. You need like, for me to to fake the verifier, I would need you know two to the one twenty eight cores or something like that. Basically, yeah. I mean, it's uh, there's there's a little more cryptography stuff going on. There's like a discrete log and stuff, but at the end of the day, yes, like there's a number of bits. The snark is secure up to like that number of bits of security. Yeah. So are they quantum resistant? Uh, there are snark. It depends on the snark construction. There's just like you know, and every week there's a new snark construction. Uh, <laughs> some are quantum resistant, and some are not yet. Um, the fastest ones are so far not quantum resistant, um, but like uh, there are ones that are already quantum resistant, and they're making super fast progress. I actually learned a few days ago, like the. Uh, most efficient way to do public key cryptography, I think this is true, in in, uh, in quantum resistant land is actually using a kind of snark, it's using Starks. Oh, interesting. So like, I think there will be like, uh, I, I, yeah, they're quant it's, it's a thing and they're gonna become like, I think the main thing once, uh, well, we'll see, but it'll definitely become a big thing once quantum resistance actually becomes important. That's, that's really cool. Um, 
I, I guess just my experience working in, in our side of, of the blockchain space is that it's moving at breakneck speed, right? There's like constant innovation, the consensus layer and the execution layer, the virtual machines. Um, and, but you guys are like even moving even faster, right? Like this is like breakneck research speed, yeah. not, not implementation. I mean, it stems from a belief that like snarks are like the key technology here and that like if we want everyone to be a first class citizen in like the digital world of tomorrow, everyone has to be able to understand what these digital systems are doing and verify them. Um, and snarks are the way to do that. So we think snarks plus cryptocurrency like is is going to be like the future of this stuff. So it's yeah. Um. So like typically like cryptography took I think like what twenty years of silk time to go from we figured this out in research. Here's the leptic curves, yeah. and then people started using them, and RSA started to get weaker. Do you think we'll see much faster adoption? Oh, of snarks? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I think like they've secretly had like maybe some of this incubation time already, but with cryptocurrency, it's like really accelerated them coming into like the real world because there's a, like really strong incentives to both develop this stuff, to build things with it, to build really good tools for it. Um, and uh, I think in the time we live in now, like people are realizing crypto cryptography is like a tool that we can use to have some agency in like, you know, the digital world of today and tomorrow. So I think particularly like snarks are exciting in that domain. Um, and yeah, like there's just a crazy amount of research going on for like, you know, a new cryptography uh, primitive. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, so I think like, what, what do you guys see as uh, like the next steps for you guys? Like that you mentioned that your testnet is super stable. Um, do you like, what's next? Like, is it mainnet or are you gonna like actually like focus on developer tooling and kind of the, the higher level operations? Yeah, so let's see. So just to give like a little, uh, it's like a high level bird's eye view of things. We launched the testnet in July of 2019. And since then we've completed like two like phases of our testnet, phase one and phase two. Um, we've had like about 150 unique people like connect and use it pretty regularly so far throughout the, the testnet. And yeah, like when we started it, there were like, you know, a whole bunch of, uh, you know, things we had to fix up and clear. And we were doing also like weekly releases, which was like insane. Like weekly releases is, is too frequent, I think now. Um, we're on like bi-weekly and that feels right. Um, so there's just been like so much progress happening so far. So where does this leave us going forward? Um, so we're going to be announcing like uh, the phase three of the testnet. And uh, like I said, there's been so many people like putting like, you know, a lot of time, like maybe individually, like hundreds of hours into the testnet. Like we've been so appreciative for like everything they've, you know, contributed so far. We've been really like just glad to have them in our community. Um, so we'll be having like a bunch of exciting announcements for phase three, including like we want to show our appreciation to community members, so something around that. And yeah, we're just really excited for like launching that. And then in terms of technical things for phase three, it'll mostly be focused on like node operators. So um, if you're excited to like run a node on one of these networks um, and get involved in that way, we're gonna be like finishing out the feature set. We're gonna be like launching things to make it really easy to be a node operator. Uh, there's a lot of interesting economics and fun things going on with the protocol that make it unique because of the snarks. Um, so you're yeah. so the, so you're still running a consensus, right? Is it BFT based, like, or is it like Nakamoto? Ah, yeah. This is a very important point for people that like node operators, um, in particular. Like, uh, 
we're proof of stake, but we are not like the typical kind of Paxos um, kind of proof of stake where you have a fixed number of node operators at any time. Um, we're, the protocol we're using, which is like a modification of this thing called Ouroboros, is, um, supports any number of participants. So it's similar to Nakamoto uh, consensus, like with Bitcoin, where you can have as many miners, you can have as many stakers as you want in this. Um, the trade-off being that it's probabilistic, but the advantage being that, you know, we don't just have 30 or 100 nodes, we can have as many nodes as we want. And it's really important to me and to us that we like are have as many people participating as possible to maximally decentralize the network. Um, so that's really what we're pushing for is just like, make sure everyone can get involved and excited to be involved and that they like, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, worthwhile for them. So, cool. and yeah, exciting for them. So uh, Ouroboros doesn't um, have like a epoch where they decide who the current set of validators are? They do, okay. but it's instead of deciding who the validators are, you just fix whatever like the ledger is going to be that um, determines the likelihood that you be that you are selected for an individual slot to be a got validator. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the set of people that are like eligible isn't just people that are like elected during an epoch. It's like everyone, everyone, everyone. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And then your likelihood is just your your stake. Yeah. Okay. Cool. That's exciting. Yes. Um, do you guys see this protocol being as like? A massively decentralized one where people are running a code node on their phone, or do you see it as like kind of validator than still like client model? No, I mean like so the snarks can be really cheaply broadcasted everywhere. Like we want everyone's phones and browsers and like every device to just be like always like connected to the coder network and kind of like you know always you can get like a full trust of the entire state of the coder world from like any of these devices. But but that's effectively just me reading the state, right? Versus me participating in consensus. Yeah, yeah. So there is a difference there where um, in order to process transactions and be a consensus node, you do have to hold like all the current account balances, um, which is way less than the whole blockchain, but um, it's more than you might want to store on your phone, for example. Um, but I think most users, like they need to be fully validating, but they don't have to be processing transactions themselves. Um, and uh, I want both to be massively decentralized. Um, yeah. What, what do you guys see as like your, I guess, validator target? In terms of number yeah. of validators? Oh man, I don't have a number off the top of my head, but I want it to be very large. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's actually like trade-offs there, right? Um, because networks only produce so many rewards and all the validators need to pay for the hardware, right? If you have an account set, for if you know ten million users, that's let's see, that's a few gigabytes of RAM. Like if even if you use it very, very if you use it very effectively. Yeah, right? I so, mean it's it's hard to imagine like you know ten million people like running consensus in this world. But not ten million, just ten million accounts. Right? Yeah, no, that's that's easy right. to imagine. I think that's like very plausible. Um, but and all those nodes should be fully verifying the state from like with the snark. But if like yeah. If you have a very large set of validators, they all have to pay for that RAM and network connectivity, right? Yeah. From the network rewards. And every new validator gets a smaller portion, right? Like, yeah. Th this is like a the hard validator problem. Like, yeah. what are the economics of actually me running this? If <laughs> I, I, I guess like, no, no, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to compare it, I guess, to like the current state of like running consensus like today, which is like, 
if we're thinking of Bitcoin, you know, you're you're a, a major company operating like a huge, um, uh, you know, mining plant that happens to be near like some hydroelectric dam that got built that no one's using. Like that's that's not accessible to the regular person. That's like an insane level of scale where like you know we we like you know are, are we pale in comparison to like these huge entities that are operating the network. Um, and I think if you think but of like, yeah, but like um, the beauty of like proof of work is that like. I can. I don't have to run the validator. I'm just adding security to some mining pool from any piece of hardware, and that even though like I'm trusting this validator, you know the mining pool node to actually do all the accounts checking and, and signing everything, because of how proof of work set up set up with Nakamoto, it's actually not not that bad that I continue adding hash power to somebody that's producing bad state, right? Yeah. So so. Yes. So in this model of the world, I would like sort of agree besides like the environmental disaster. Yes, agree, different yeah. Work. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in particular, like um, I was I was reading some report, I think like a few days ago about where all the mining power is coming from for Bitcoin. And it's it's some crazy percent. I think it was like 55 percent from like one province in China where they like have like a little more hydroelectric than everywhere else. And it's like especially cheap. So it's like 55 percent that province. I think 65 percent China as a whole. And then it's kind of distributed otherwise. But like, I, I think there was this dream of like, you know, you know, I have a dorm room, I have a GPU. Let's get, let's let's mine some crypto. It's gonna be exciting. It's gonna be fun. I'm gonna like, you know, maybe make some money. I'm going to um, be able to participate in the network and add a lot of security to it. I I, I think that it's it's kind of sad actually. But but I think those days are kind of gone. Um, proof of work at least. I think there's a real potential proof of stake to kind of recapture that as we need a lot of individuals to come in and be parts of these networks, like recapturing like 2010, 2011 Bitcoin. But yeah, I, I, yeah. I, like I, I think, I think the, the reality is that like, we're not going to see people running state validation on their phones or laptops, but you can see people do it on their home connection or colo and like early nineties internet. There were like thousands of ISPs. There were just a few people that like knew a little bit of how to do it, right? Yeah. They, they, they didn't have to be like the engineers that like at Sun or Cisco at the time that built the, the internet. They just knew how to put the pieces together, and then now they're participating in this, in this like new cool thing called the internet, right? Like, yeah. From from my perspective, I think proof of stake offers that ability, right? All you need is a local some local connectivity. A little bit of power, right? Which is available everywhere, and you can start adding security to the system. Um, that's a much different proposition than proof of work, although there's a lot of trade-offs. Right? No, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, how are you guys thinking about um, like the the complexity of like creating this? Snark-based computation environment and teaching developers like how yeah, yeah. use it. I mean, I think we in our heads have to like separate like oh like there's this crypto primitive that like you know has some math going on in it and like oh we can use it for something. Like I mean, I think most developers today kind of know what a hash function is and maybe they've even used it, but like they they probably don't know the internals and like the proofs and why it works. I think we can do a similar thing with snarks and make the possibilities available to people without having them overwhelming them with all like this, uh, you know, you know, PhDs worth of uh, knowledge you have to do to like understand how it's working under the hood, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think like we'll get to a point where you have like a, 
you know, like a JavaScript domain-specific language for Snarks, where I'm like coding in something super high level. I'm like, okay, do yeah. this thing, and then I understand the API. Yeah, definitely. I think Snarky is like you know eighty percent of the way there already, um, with like a you know slightly different syntax, but it's it's super close, and it's yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Is it is it like? Do you think I would be able to construct a Poseidon-based PDF? That's, that's oh shoot. Kind of okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you should try. You should do okay. it. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, I I think like, uh, however hard it would have been a year ago, it's like way easier now. And even if today like you wouldn't be able to do it, six months from now you probably would be able to. Um, That's awesome. Making the assumption that a Poseidon based VDF is possible, but right. yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely like have some cryptography folks uh, like at least look at the idea. Um, but for me, like that's. Like again, I'm just an operating systems person, but as soon as I see something like a piece like this, where I'm like, okay, we're spending X amount of cycles on this computation, why replicate it everywhere if we can compute the proof of it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you like look at like Ethereum today, it's like, you know, a week or no, it's even more, I think, to get download all the state. Like, uh, that's just like too high of a barrier entry, I think, for the regular person to use cryptocurrency or participate in consensus. I think, yeah. yeah um, what do you think of like zk sync and like the the this improvements to ethereum uh let's see so i think like in terms of improvements to ethereum in general like i kind of group it into like uh zk snark based and you know sharding based um i think like it's, it's kind of cool seeing being proven out that like so far anyway from where i think about it that like the snarks are like the way forward for ethereum also yeah um but you you gain so much more by putting snarks into the core of like the into the of the protocol, not just having it like a way of doing sidechains really well, but you actually have it so the entire consensus state, the entire chain, is available in like this little zero knowledge proof. Um, it's it's uh, especially when you have recursive zero knowledge proofs, and this works me very good. Other snark programs, it just adds so much more to what you can do from both like a scalability, a privacy perspective, and accessibility perspective. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like again, this is the no sharding podcast. So <laughs> my 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 perspective was that um, they'll probably ship snarks before they ship sharding. <laughs> and who you know, you know, it's it's a year ago that would be crazy, and now it's it's kind right. of plausible. It's yeah, happening. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's not not to say anything like about the engineers working on it. It's just sharding is like a really hard engineering problem. Like you're dealing with like. Like, how do I sync state between these two shards such that it makes any even sense for me to like try to split the network this way, right? Like, yeah. it's it's a problem that like traditionally folks have worked at like as SREs at like you know Dropbox or whatever. They understand that like when you split the databases, yeah. <laughs> things don't often go as planned. Especially when your databases are each like you know one TPS or whatever, right. or, or on the order yeah. of one TPS. Yeah. It's like a different. Yeah. You know, maybe if our databases reached two thousand TPS, this would be make, make a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I think also um, there's a whenever there's there's also like this 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 thing that I think people should talk about more for sharding is like, you know, you have to shuffle who is validating which shard over time, and yeah. then whenever you do that, you have to redownload all the data for the other shard. So there's like this really high switching cost and this weird trade-off problem with how frequently you're switching versus like how much data you're requiring from the user. You're really beating the single chain problem at this point, or are you just like, so, so yeah. To me, this was obvious, just like my background, 
working on mobile like operating systems is that there's an enormous switching cost from one CPU core to another one on the same die, mm. right? Just just taking a, a, a thread, right? An execution context that's running on one CPU core and moving it to another one, you're like wasting like milliseconds worth of cycles, right? You're yeah. like, it's basically like that. <laughs> you know, when we said milliseconds of cycles, right. it was like a terabyte worth right. of data. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's super <laughs> like, I mean, I'm honestly kind of excited to see it play out, but like, I want to understand better these these trade-offs first. Yeah. Um, what, what's cool about snarks is if you do have a chain that's fully snarkable, then sharding actually does not sacrifice any security. Yeah. Because two shards, when they see snarks of each other's computation, they can verify the entirety of that computation instantly. That's right, yeah. So you, like, basically, yeah, in, in the snark world, I think sharding is like, makes a lot more or like you can at least see how like everyone's not a light note of each other everyone's like a full note of each other yeah um and the you still have to do this switching thingy just to make sure the data is actually available but um the data itself is much smaller because it's only the current state and not just like the whole history there it, it, you get a lot of like really nice advantages i think that's cool so by the current state um do you me as a client i basically just use some merkle right header of the of the state yeah and i have a snark that verifies that that was computed correctly yep and then i have a path to whatever account i want to see yeah 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 okay. exactly okay. yeah the snark just tells you like oh yeah like the merkle root of the whole database is correct and this is the consensus strength for it so you can find the strongest one you got the strongest one now you can get the path down to your account it's like 20 kilobytes no it's less than that it's only uh, like three kilobytes per account so um, that seems like that could be easily adopted to the UXDO model as well. Because all you need is like an inclusion proof of the transaction, right? Ooh, let, let, let's, let's think about it for a sec. <laughs> so the answer is, I think it's like sort of, but you have to have the logic for like once you've like used up a prior UTXO, like throwing that away. Um, so like you would still have sort of an account-based model generally, but like the paths would be down to like indexes that would represent like current UTXO state. Got it. Anyway, okay. whatever. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, not if just having an inclusion proof of the transaction is not enough, right? I need to know that it's never, it hasn't been spent. Yeah, and, and you could do this, but the account-based model is a little cleaner at least right now. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, how does that impact privacy? Like, I mean, code is like not going to be private at launch. Like, we have like this awesome advantage that we've already embedded Snarks like really core in the protocol and the recursive. So, like, it should be plausible for us or anyone else to like add them on. And I think we really care a lot about privacy, so we want to see that happen. But it basically means we're at like the pseudo anonymous level of, of privacy yeah. right now. Where you know maybe you have like you know use accounts over or something and uh, you just kind of have to it's on the, it's on the user's you know behalf to think about if their public keys are exposing anything to them or not. But um, I guess to fit like a Zcash style like where you have like these you know paths right between values that haven't been spent, yeah. you would need uh, a snark that verifies that that whole computation. Yeah. So so here's. Um, the way that I could imagine someone doing privacy right now with, on top of Coda and like, you know, encourage anyone to do this down the line if, if, uh, if we're not ones that are they're building it. But uh, you basically implement, um, basically, you know, 
you know, zero cash the protocol as like sort of like a side chain on Coda and you would move money in and out of like the private land um, yeah. on zero cash in, in, in Coda and that would give you like the privacy guarantees that you want. Yeah. Um, one thing that I've been thinking about recently with regards to staking is that um, it seems like a chain where you can have anonymized staking would be more secure because you don't run the risk of validators that if validators do not know who staked to them, but you can somehow determine this is the amount that a validator has been staked to, right? You get kind of, yeah. If you only have a proof of that, you have better security guarantees about that validator. They can't, for example, they can't force themselves to get slashed or something like that when their delegates decide to spend their money, right? Yeah, I mean, I think like in the optimal world, like we would divide things into like private and public and the network would vote and what should be private and what should be public. If you know, the network wants to make certain data private, like the balance of different stakers, let's do it. If the network wants to keep certain information public, like making sure that like, um, you know, certain individuals aren't like, you know, like, you know, hoarding a shit ton of money on this, on this platform or something, I don't know, something like that, then we can do that too. But you can do whatever you want in like this snark privacy line. You can choose your level of granularity over what's private and what's not. Cool. Yeah. Um, let's see. Is there anything else, Elston? It's covered a ton. Okay. Um, the only other thing that would be really interesting is comparing, contrasting, starting a layer one, difficulties, experiences, anything you guys noticed when like first getting off the ground. I think would be interesting, and then we can probably wrap it up after that. Yeah. Like. Um, so this is something that you know, like, is is like I think a fact of technology companies working on tech, like startups specifically, is that like, you should only be trying to solve one hard problem where you have, you know, because 90% of the time you'll fail. But if you're solving three hard problems, right, <laughs> the probability of your success starts to approach zero. Yeah. Do, do you guys, how many hard problems are you guys solving in your mind? <laughs> I mean, it really depends on your, like, uh, you know, really there's like probably a lot of hard problems. But the one I think most about is just like, snarks as like this like fundamental breakthrough technology but it's so new we have to get it out to everyone and we need to like um build something awesome with it and you know we're definitely i think kind of like trailblazing which is like super exciting and like a really fun opportunity um but like it's, it's like a huge problem uh how to get this out into the world so um making snarks big yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah if I feel like we, we, we at least don't have like a research, hard research problem like snarks. We just have hard engineering problems. I think they're engineering now though. That's the thing. I think that like, that's like the secret is like snarks are like an engineering problem now and they're going to be out there really soon. Um, and if you look at our test net, you can play with them right now. They're there. It's, it's really exciting. That's awesome. Cool. Well, uh, this has been like a super illuminating conversation for me. I feel like my knowledge of snarks is like now 10x. <laughs> yeah, glad to hear it. Yeah. It's fun to talk about the yeah. snarks and everything. So it's, it's yeah. cool. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah. Thank you. All right.